Well, greetings, everyone. It is so good to see you. Look what I drug in. Pastor Kurt is back in the saddle, or maybe he's saddled. I don't know. What do you think? Well, so good to have you back, Pastor Kurt. Thank you. Uh, For sure. Well, uh, tonight is our second to the last study uh, on the book of Colossians. I hope you all have enjoyed our time in the book. It's been really good for me, um, and I know it's been good for Pastor Kurt, too. Uh, I think it's just very relevant to some things that we're dealing with culturally, uh, especially relative to uh, the body and how important our embodied lives are uh, in the world. And uh, we are not Gnostics. Uh, we have a place a high value on our bodies, and that is where God works His grace into the world is through our bodies, right? And we're going to see more of how that plays itself out uh, tonight as we continue in chapter three. But as we uh, prepare our hearts uh, to be in God's presence together around His Word, uh, believing that. The Word of God changes lives and changes us. Today is the 131st day of the year and uh, happens to be the number of my favorite psalm. And so let's pray that one together and uh, may it be so for us tonight. Psalm 131. Our hearts are not proud, Lord. Our eyes are not haughty. We do not concern ourselves with great matters or things too wonderful for us. But we have calmed and quieted ourselves. We are like weaned children with our mother. Like weaned children, we are content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And everyone said, Amen indeed. Well, I think we're in chapter 3. You guys can probably tell me better uh, than I know, but I think we're in chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Paul is sharing these words in a letter. I don't know if he fully realizes it. He may have an inkling, but he's creating uh, a continuation of the Bible. He's creating words that are changing his world. I don't know about you. Steve and I were talking earlier today at staff. It it seems like the last couple years have been just a tsunami of of incredible events, right? We had the plague, and we have World War III, And now all this stuff again in our country, it just it seems so overwhelming. And you think, how do, how do simple words that we share in Bible study tonight affect all of that? But you have to remember that Paul lived in a world where everything was different. So many of the things that we take for granted about the way we treat marriage, the way we treat kids, the way we behave, uh, what, what is permissible in terms of treating other people, I mean, through slavery, uh, just all of these things that had been in the world literally for centuries and centuries. And Paul is uttering these words, and God begins to use them to change the hearts and minds of people in that church as it begins to change the whole world. We live in a world that Christianity has molded. 
Um, and sometimes we think, oh, people have always been that way. You know, we think people have always loved children, right? It's just a, a knee-jerk reaction. It's not the case. Uh, you can prove it historically, archaeologically. It, it's not the case. Christianity, specifically the teachings of Jesus, did that. Um, no other country built Disneyland, right? Except for a Christian nation, the love for children. In our society today, I think a lot of that's being torn down, um, being attacked, being undone, and thus we have the social confusion that we do. So it, I think, should propel us as Christians to go again to the source to see how God did it once and made our world better. I mean, it, it's Christianity that ended uh, child marriage. It's Christianity that ended slavery. It's cr- Christianity that does all of these things because of these teachings. Um, we've done it before. We can do it again. But it all starts verse 12. <clears throat> Since God has chosen you to be the holy people whom he loves. Now this is an extension of a very sacred phrase that was given, given to the children of Israel. The Am Sugula. Uh, the people that are chosen, the chosen people. And this had been their fortress, their rock, that had helped them endure, and I think continues to this day, endure just about every kind of challenge and attempt at genocide. But here we see that being extended. People that are born in the covenant, but also people who accept the Messiah of the covenant are, are now the chosen people who God has loved. So we get this incredible inclusion. But there's an important element here. Paul tells us, You must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So I know you talked about what you were supposed to take off of yourself, right? A couple weeks. Fig leaves, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're wearing a fig leaf, please leave it on. Um, but... This robe stuff is more than just uh, an analogy, or maybe I should say it's an old, old analogy. Do you remember in our Revelation study, the clothes they describe people wearing in heaven? White robes, exactly. Uh, This is really all throughout Scripture. If you remember our Ezekiel study, God said that he would give the people when he returned, when he called them um, in the... um, to come to the mountain, to come back to, to Zion, that he would uh, clothe them in white clothing. Um, this is priestly clothing. Um, I think we've got a picture if that came through. So these are what uh, priests look like in Israel. These are the Kohen. And this is their dress that was directed by God. Uh, it's that pure white. And so it's been this running image that the chosen people will don these white robes. And these white robes are the sign of purity, a sign of uh, your service to God. And what did God ultimately intend for the nation of Israel or for the church to be? A nation of what? Priests. Who said it? Yeah. Bill, who said it? Mm. <laughs> Well, good. Yeah. Well, you deserve the gold star today. That is absolutely correct. 
Yeah, so Paul is bringing all of these themes together. You are the chosen. You are the priestly nation. You will wear these white robes. But he's tying to, you know, it's not literally you're going to get a robe. Like in Revelation, it's this decision, this identity, this choice that you make that your outer being, who you choose to be, is merciful, is kind, is humble, is gentle, and patient. I was thinking about it earlier. What kind of society did Rome have? Yeah, for sure. What, what did they do for entertainment? They had big Super Bowls too, right? Yeah. Yep, incredibly violent. Uh, with, from the gladiators uh, to mock battles to people being eaten by animals or people killing animals. I mean, just the whole bedrock of this culture is violence. Um, they have spread their empire through the point of a sword. I mean, nobody voluntarily joined Rome, right? Oh, we'd like to negotiate to join your great union. It never happened that way. It was always a legion crushing you and then rebuilding you. So... You want to talk about somebody being naive and not well-connected or just silly? How can you live in the Roman Empire and think that you're going to get anywhere with gentleness, mercy, kindness, humility? But they do. They change the Roman Empire. They change the culture. They change the people. Um, Again, we, we go to Rome today, or you can go to Athens today, and the religion is not going to the Colosseum, it's still Christianity. So you want to continue? 13? Well, let, right. me, uh, let me just add a couple of things there. So just, just kind of let that, uh, that identity builder fill you up. So there's like three just key words that you are God's chosen, right? Holy and dearly loved. That is who you are. And those are things that you need to allow to roll around in your soul regularly. Uh, like make it a practice that when you put your feet on the floor in the morning, that you allow yourself to be reminded who you are. That you are holy. Remember that word holy means that you are just like it, it's all connected to this priestly language that Kurt's been talking about. To be holy not necessarily mean that you're morally perfect. I would think it means you're striving to be morally perfect, but that holy means that you're set apart. Kurt always does a good job of reminding us that there was never white material in the Holy Land, right? Because it's all dirt. Uh, but they worked to make things white so that they could be seen as set apart, right? So who is the first holy set-apart one in Scripture? Uh, that would be Adam. Adam is the original priest. And then Eve, of course, uh, being uh, uh, coming along after him there. Uh, but remember from our sermon, sermon series back in the fall? That when we talked about, uh, about uh, Adam and Eve being the original priest and their calling... They're holy, they're set apart for a purpose. Genesis 2.15, to serve and protect. Remember those words, avad and shamar, serve and protect. 
Well, one of the things that Paul gives uh, gives some strength and some weight to. Well, how does that serving and protecting look? It looks like compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. Oh, that sounds a lot like maybe God's character. Remember the big five? God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faith. And that's what a priest does. A priest stands in the gap between God and people, and he represents or represents God to them. And when we allow ourselves to, ooh, this is who I am. I'm holy, I'm set apart, and I am dearly loved. Me? Dearly loved? That that is to motivate you and push you out. This section ends uh, that we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Remember, the name is associated to reputation and character. That this is how we avad and shamar out in the world, by reflecting God's character. Living life on God's terms to point others to God. So Paul's language here, it's obviously bringing the Old Testament forward. It's, it's combining lots of themes. Like Steve said, it's getting us back to our original intent. But for a Greek audience in particular, priests were high-class people. Most of the time in Jewish society, for certain, uh, they were parts of certain lineage. It, it wasn't as if you could decide one day to become a priest. Right. You had to be born into a family. Um, you know, the Kohen that we talked about are descendants of, of Moses and Levi. Many cultures in the Mediterranean are that way. Uh, it's such a badge of distinction and honor. And the Roman society is very uh, stratified, almost caste-driven. Um, again, your clothes quickly determine your status. I mean, you can sort of see this. Um, who, who is a person in Roman society wearing a toga? Yeah, it's upper class, probably a senator. College students? <laughs> yeah, it's not college students. Um, you're, you're, you're not going to go down to the laundromat in your toga, right? It's, it, it's, a, it's a mark of distinction. Who wears purple? Royalty, uh, probably the emperor. Um, who, who wears a, a sign around their neck, literally a sign that says, um, if you see this, I'm a runaway, a slave, right? Uh, so this clothing that he's offering, is it would have been amazing to them that they would have been given this opportunity in this continuation of Judaism to be included in this chosen group it, it just it would boggle the mind in the other competing religions you know the mithra cults that are coming out of persia the isis stuff that's coming out of egypt uh, you would have had to have spent years of of study and probably donations in order to become initiates and get the secrets and all that weird cultish kind of stuff none of that's happening paul's saying it's it's our choices it's our behavior we're, we're going to choose to be different people but lest you think that it's all um, him trying to stop some Greek behavior, uh, he, he shifts gears as he's want to do. So he'll sort of criticize Greek culture and then he criticizes Jewish culture. Um, you must make allowances for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now we think, again, this is just normal 
golden rule behavior, right? The foundation of Western civilization. Do you think Rome ever forgave anybody for anything? I mean, it was um, the smallest insult uh, could lead to incredible uh, acts of violence. And it, it, it certainly is a Semitic uh, behavior. Uh, the tribal structure of Israel and, and the you know, s- surrounding, when I say Semitic, I mean language, but also uh, family groups. Um, they would have blood feuds, the likes that were horrendous. I mean, we, we see them in scripture. You offend one of their daughters, and they will try to kill you for generations. Um, it's, it, it was toning things down when God said, hey, an eye for an eye. He was trying to make it proportional, right? Um, if they've killed your cow, doesn't mean you burn their house down, right? Let's, let's keep this on an even keel. So Paul is sort of raising that to a different level. You need to see the grace that's been given to you, and you need to extend that to another person. One thing I want to add, it's very, very important that Christians usually miss, the behavior about uh, forgiveness and repentance was very well defined. And sometimes Paul goes through it quickly, but I don't think he means to negate sort of the standard uh, behavior. If you did not ask for forgiveness, there is no discussion of forgiveness. And a lot of times Christians get in that place. They think that we have to forgive even if the other person hasn't repented. This is not taught in the Old Testament. I do not think it's taught in the New Testament. People say, and we will bounce out of this, um, as God has forgiven you. Does God forgive you for unrepentant sin? No. So Judaism had some very defined categories for what you needed to do if you had sinned and you had hurt God or hurt somebody else. And, and they were pretty serious. But... The, the, the strictures were, if a person is willing to go through that and really turn from their behavior, it behooves you then to forgive them. But sometimes we want to short change that and convince ourselves, well, you know, the hate was just making me suffer. And, and, and I, okay, you, you can have those discussions, but don't hear Christian or hear the text telling you that. There has to be repentance before there is forgiveness. For us and for others around it, okay? So let me stop there. That's kind of a big, big whammy. Uh, comments, worries, questions, disagreement? It, it, it just remember one of the things about the Old Testament is that there was a certain type of sin that could not be forgiven yep. in the Old Testament. Yeah. It's called the sin with the high hand. What does that kind of sound like? Remember Psycho? It's like willful, intentional sin. There was no provision in the Old Testament for that to be forgiven. So if I thought, I'm going to kill you tonight, and then tomorrow I'm going to ask for forgiveness, God would be, no. It doesn't work that way. This is not an exchange, right? Right. Um, Because you say certain words, I am compelled. If, If you're premeditated in this, it's not... It's not going to be forgiven. Yeah. So this is the roots. And I think it's important that a lot of times we, we get grounded here 
Um, because popular culture, conversation amongst ourselves, tradition, what I've heard, sermons, blah, blah, it, it tends to, to fluff things up. Um, certainly, people in Scripture have been forgiven for amazing things, for murder, for betrayal. Um, God is willing and prepared to forgive us for anything, but we've got to ask for it. It, he's, he's not compelled to do it. Yes? So, unpack that a little bit. Father. Sure. So on um, where do you go from saying God does not forgive unrepent, unrepented of sin to you could carry that to an extreme and say somebody being paralyzed by Oh gosh, I'm scared to get in the car today because I might get in a wreck and there might be this thing, this thing that I haven't repented of or that thing that I haven't repented of, sort of that. Uh, yeah. So. Um, yeah, thank you for that. How can you, how can you practically apply God does not forgive unrepentant of sin to the fact that I've probably sinned today in ways that I'm not even aware of. Yeah, no, and, and thanks for bringing that up because I don't, I don't want to leave anybody with, um, you know, that that crippling sense. You know, I've got to figure out everything that I've done wrong and constantly bring that before God. Um, I think there is a true spirit of what we're trying to do. Um, we've just completed a study of David. Um, uh, with if when you walk through his life, there are are just bundles and bundles of sins and mistakes and and horrible things. And yet, at the end of the day, God still says He's the man after My own heart. So there was this intent, this desire, this hope um, on the part of David, even though he continued to make mistakes, um, and he does regularly. You know, the Psalms kind of give this blanket, I, I apologize, I'm sorry, I know I'm a worm, I'm all these kind of things. So the, the, it's trying there to, to get to a place in which he knows forgiveness. Daniel, it's, it's not uh, checking a, a ledger book, you know, that you've got this mark, so I've got this mark. And I think it's both ways that God doesn't want it. You know, he doesn't want it in, if I do X, then God has to do Y. On the other side, he doesn't want us to just list out our sins and then you know him give forgiveness for all of them but i i believe the sin that will damn you is not unknown to you that if you're really reflective my drinking my cheating on my wife my stealing my lying you know these things that are destroying us are usually not a mystery to me so do you need to worry oh you know i had a bad thought about a person uh, and I could go to hell for that. No, I don't think so. But I do think if you're going to church, raising your family, and have a mistress on the side, and you never go to God about that, then yes, you really do have a problem in life. Yeah. And that has to be addressed. Does that answer it? Uh, it, it that, that's helpful. What? A follow-up question. Would you make any distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation? Oh, tremendous. Um, and, the, the, you know, there, 
there's some sins that cannot be forgiven by God in a sense that there's a person that we've offended and so we need to go get forgiveness from them. Reconciliation is always God's ultimate goal to be reconciled to him, which is reestablishing the relationship. And again, sometimes we have to do that with another person. Um, and that's ultimately God's goal. But again, it can be very, very possible. But I think Christians tend to treat, this tend to cheat. We want, when we've made a mistake, this forgiveness from God. And then we won't do the work to reconcile from the other person. The, the whole notion of forgiveness in, in, in a Old Testament, New Testament sense is very much... A, matter of relationship between people. It's talking. It's not this spiritualized by myself, I'm going to fix it. You, you, you can't. Um, there has to be conversation with God and there has to be conversation with other people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that Pastor Kurt and I are going to be working on uh, starting this next Sunday and moving through the the entire month of June and July, one of the things that you're going to hear is a, the words autonomous solitude. Now think about that for a second. Um, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that was an act of autonomy on their part. What God has said, what God has said is good, I'm going to choose to see as evil. And I'm going to do, live life on my terms, and I'm going to eat the fruit. That was an act of autonomy. And what that, that autonomous action then drove a wedge between them and God and between each other. Because remember, what does, what does God do? What does Adam do immediately when God confronts him? Blames Eve. This is not good. This is not God. That, that is like a fundamental stroke against humanity, right? That we are made for relationship, for covenant relationship with each other. And that that is what sin does. It moves us to this place of autonomous uh, solitude from each other. One of my favorite parts of the uh, book, uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, if you're not familiar with it, man, just get the book and read it. It'll take you just a couple of days to read it. It's, just, it's really short. But his, the way he describes hell is it's a gray town. And it has these houses, and if you get offended by your neighbor, you just go build another house a hundred miles away. <laughs> you just con you just constantly keep moving out and moving out. That is the example of autonomous solitude. You're not reconciling. You're blaming, and you're moving away. You're withdrawing. Richard, go ahead. Use the microphone, please. If the, uh, the guy who had the mistress, let's say he asked for forgiveness, waited a day, and then he went straight back to the mistress, what would happen to him? <laughs> you could actually even take that one step further. Right. So whatever, he did it again and waited a day and then went. Yeah. I, I think God gives us pretty the best the best analogy to process this and it's usually as a father right god in our relationship with him it's as a father god's intent is to teach us to make good choices 
that when you cheat on your wife, it destroys your relationship with your wife and with your kids and with everyone else. That's what God is trying to teach us. He's not God the accountant. Well, you've done this 47 times, and you've only asked for grace 23 times. It, it doesn't work that way. If, if you say you're sorry and you go back and do it again, there may have been this, this upswelling of do the right thing in you um, that God will try to enhance and bring forth so that next time he's stopping it. I mean, he, he, the scripture is clear. He's not interested in us being damned or being punished, but he's also not going to accept us making bad choices and trying to get him to cover it. That, that is not a, a winner. To make us dependent on his grace because we never learn to make choices is not his ultimate goal. Right here at the front, Brenda, towards the front, sorry. I don't even know how to begin. Um, I feel very guilty right now. I have been offended by one of my brothers, and it's been over two years, and I hold that in my heart. And I know now that that is hurting only me because I have never said a word to this person. I treat them with kindness, but I have that ugliness in my heart that he should already know that he has offended my household. But I don't know how to approach him because then I'm afraid that, and I shouldn't be afraid, that he is going to hold that against me now. And when I say nearly two years is a long time. Yeah. I don't want to go to my grave or meet my maker knowing that I had that. I don't want to have to stand up in front of our judgment and have to hear what I, you know, I don't even know how to start that. I just I don't know how to pray about it except I'm, I'm, I feel more guilty than what he's done. And I didn't even do the offense. But my offense is even greater, I feel, than what he's done to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you're honestly one of the easiest people to talk to I know. You're sweet and kind and funny. Um, it, tell the truth. It is what it is. For a year, I'm going to approach him. That's, that's what God loves. Talk to God and talk to him. And that's how these things get fixed. Yep. But those, and you know, like we pray for forgiveness every day when we wake up, throughout the day. At night before I go to sleep. So I don't, and that's one of the worst things I have ever felt like I've ever done is hold this grudge. Yeah. This, you know, and I don't ever talk to anyone about it except my spouse. Well, Brenda, one of the things I want to encourage you as you as you even said the said that word there is that that I'm afraid that he will then hold that against me. One of the one of the things in this whole reality of living a life of forgiveness receiving God's forgiveness and because we have received that forgiveness and our relationship is restored and we are walking with the Lord that that will then compel us to walk in forgiveness with others is that you have to be willing to surrender the outcomes 
We, we don't know how the other person will react or respond to our uh, advances to offer and to receive and to try to receive forgiveness, to say I'm sorry, to let them know how this hurt me. We don't know. But that is an act of vulnerability on our part to, to, to willingly surrender the outcomes. You walking in faithfulness the best way you know how, that will, that will win the day one way or the other. But you've got to be willing to surrender the outcomes. Yeah, and that you make that choice, God loves. Yeah. That you learned it's worth not carrying that. You're, you're exactly who he wants you to be. Remember, the last night he's on earth, he's having the meal with the disciples. And at the Last Supper, who's he talking to? You remember? Who, who's the, the focus at the dinner table? Judas. And he's doing exactly what you're struggling with. He's trying to say, Judas, look, it would be better if you had never been born. If, if you continue down this road, can you just do something else? And Jesus had to have the same insecurity because he knows where it's going, right? Judas is going to make a horrible decision. But Jesus still offers that act of love. That's what he hopes from, from us. So thank you for sharing that. Thank yeah. you. And you can imagine, too, that in this church, in all churches that Paul is associated in, we're shoehorning in Jews and Greeks. And remember, we have the Phrygians, who are kind of a local indigenous group that have been marginalized, so they're shooed in. People don't normally associate with each other. They have different customs. They're from different social strata. Uh, it, people are constantly getting offended and upset, and fights are breaking out. Uh, we look at the Church of Corinth, and it's, it's a disaster. I mean, people sleeping with each other and running around and stealing and it just it's a nightmare um but that's the the laboratory of this grace really working its way out um again it's not just stuff that we think about or we philosophically will agree to it's what we actually do you know when i have to deal with this jew or i have to deal with this greek um Verse 18 is going to get very controversial for us because we're in the theoretical now and then it gets very practical. The way you treat your wife, the way you treat your husband, the way you treat your slave. Slave, it, it gets hard. But any other questions? It, it, uh, oh, go ahead, Daniel. Man, you ne- in all these years, you never answer, asked these questions. I've been holding this microphone for a long time. Um, no. The reason I'm prying a little bit here is a New Testament uh, scholar from whom I've learned a lot says, which is a radical statement, but that's why it stuck with me. He says, you are already forgiven. What may not have happened yet is reconciliation. So it, I'm, so I'm having a mental debate between Kurt and this guy. Sure. And so... If God has not, if God does not forgive sin, of which we have not repented, what do we do with Father? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right. So I think you agree with me. God is not a universalist, right? The death of Jesus on the cross did not, by magic, automatically forgive everybody that's ever existed. We have some role to play in that, right? <laughs> otherwise what are we doing it doesn't matter right i think that the guy with whom you're having a debate in my, <laughs> in my head would say we have a part to play in reconciliation yes god's offer of forgiveness 
stands. Yeah, there are a number of places in the gospel where Jesus continues to add the, the phrase confession. That that is not removed from the equation. And so the, the reconciliation, which we all agree is the ultimate goal, is the healing process. But if we're talking about that which initiates and that which changes behavior, uh, there still has to be repentance, teshuva, uh, the turning. Um, so, no, we're, we're not the, the major actor in the forgiveness, but we have to learn. We have to make choices. Uh, as much as we want to push it off on God, um, the child still has to learn how to behave. So even if we're not universalists, I mean, still, what, what, what do you do with the, the prayer from the cross there? That it's a, like a, a sacrificial a role. I mean, he's playing that Hebrews lays out that as the high priest, he is calling uh, for the forgiveness of those that have done them wrong because they know not what they have done. So it's not a, he's trying to, you know, it's not high handed sin. Um, they've, they've done this out of ignorance of not knowing who he was. So again, more high priestly forgiving in, in Yom Kippur kind of way, um, the, the sins of the nation. But that would never negate if I have sinned against somebody that I have to go and apologize to them and try to make it right. It, it would seem counterintuitive to me that he would hold a standard in the Old Testament so clear and then suddenly throw it all out in the New Testament to become a universalist. That God never needed our say in any of this. We're just pets at the end of the day. I think... Wesley goes along. Wesley could go along with that in his emphasis on sin being a willful transgression of known law, like you said. Before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pam. It made me think about the prodigal son, where he wasn't really coming back to ask for forgiveness, or the father didn't saw him coming back, and he came and forgave him before he even said anything. Right. But the father didn't. In his home, say, I forgive you. It doesn't matter if you come home or not. I forgive you. In my heart, I've forgiven you, boy. It didn't work that way. The father stayed where the father stayed. And the boy had to come back. Again, this turning, the teshuva in Hebrew is so important. It's the repentance of the turning back. Now, remember the boy had the speech? He was already what he's going to say. It didn't matter. Because the choice in his heart was to come back. And so that's, you know, God is doing 99.9% of it. But there still has to be that part in us that says, no, I don't want this. I want this. And strive for it. And that's what I think we sometimes cheat on. We want it to be all God fixing it. I mean, I, I confess, I've prayed way too many times, Lord, change this person's heart. Lord, make this person do this. Lord, make my son. It doesn't work that way. Um, but we may feel that we want it to. <laughs> well, we're thinking tonight. That's good stuff. <clears throat> All right. We ready to go verse 15? Wow, we've made it two verses. Woohoo! <laughs> We're going to make three more. Tonight. Three more. All right. Three more. Fifteen? Yeah. All right. And let the peace that comes from Christ's rule in your hearts, 
For as members of one body, you are all called to live in peace and always be thankful. So again, tremendous weight given to the word peace. Shalom in Hebrew, which I think Paul is bouncing off of. Peace in the sense of uh, wholeness, completeness. If something is functioning the way God designed it, it's said to be shalom. So in order for you to be the person that you need to be, you need this sense of the clothing. You need this sense of love. You need this sense of tenderness and kindness and mercy. And then God can put it all together. Um, that our world is a different place because of this shalom. And I wonder if Paul isn't contradicting here a little the sense of Roman peace. Remember Pax Romana? The Romans were delighted. This is their governing philosophy, that they have brought civilization and culture to the world, that the world is now at peace under Rome, Pax Romana. Um, at the end of the spear. At the end of a spear. Right. Once we have crushed you, we've destroyed your life, we've given you no other choice, and you accept that we're here to take all the resources, all of the bit of your life to make ours better, and you've given up hope. That's Roman peace. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's completely the opposite. God is bringing all together to make you better to make you complete as a person, to let you be who you are meant to be along with the person next to you, that you guys live in right relationship. That's real peace, not at the end of, or under the heel of a Roman legion. Yeah. I want to say one thing about Paul's use of love here, and it's uh, another issue that I think Christians, especially nowadays, need to be very, very, very clear it has become popular wisdom, accepted fact, that agape, the word that Paul uses here for Christian love, means unconditional love. So have you heard this? Agape, unconditional love. It does not mean that at all. Uh, the way that this is employed in Greek, agape, agapos, is the choice or lo- well, uh, um, it, it's the love of choice. The way the Greeks used it is that a father would look at a group of sons and say, oh, I love this one. I choose this one. So it's not a common Greek verb. Um, and Paul is sort of expanding it here. But it's, it's choosing one to be the winner, one above others. The reason they're doing that is they're saying God has chosen us. That's how he started all this, right? We're the new chosen people. Um, we choose to be gentle and kind and loving. It's this action we're taking. Now, to be sure, there's nothing that we have done to earn all of this. Um, and so maybe on that part, you can say it's unconditional, that God's choice for us uh, was unconditional. But again, Christians are getting really fuzzy that somehow God doesn't care what we do or care what we're like. Completely the opposite. 
they picked this word agape because it was a choice. You choose to be part of this new chosen people. You choose to be a new priest. You choose to put on the cloak. You choose to accept the Christ of teaching. That's what Christianity was driving at. Not that we're just helpless blobs, that God just pours love on us because he decides to. So agape is not really defined as unconditional love. It's the love of choice or choice of love. And I think also inherent in that, uh, when we make a choice, there, there is an element of sacrifice uh, with agape always. Uh, that to will or to choose the good of another, it's one of the ways I like to define uh, biblical agape love, is, is there's, it's always, there's always going to be some sort of cost in that choice. It's not going to be just free, right? And we know that. I mean, when we, when we love our kids, that's not free. Or is it? No. It's going to cost us something. To, for, for Greeks and Jewish Christians to love each other? Holy cow. What is it going to cost them, Kurt? Everything. And probably their lives. Yeah. So... Their preferred way of of uh, living in the world, their their calendar. There has to be something uh, surrendered to the calendar. Their diet, all of this stuff, uh, has to be uh, has to be sacrificed for the good of the other. So let's try to finish up this section, verse sixteen. Let the words of Christ in all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise. Now, this is really extraordinary. Uh, Paul has reminded us the importance of Scripture, uh, but he's opening the door here for what we will know as the Gospels. Obviously, they were not included in, in the Bible, in the Scriptures at this point, but I think Paul understands uh, when Jesus spoke, it was something extraordinary. Um, we can debate a little bit if some of the Gospels could have been written at this point, but um, I don't think Luke was, uh, which would have been the Gospel that Paul has the most connection with. Um, but it, it doesn't negate the fact that um, to to walk through the life of Christ, to think again with him, to hear his parables, to think of the prodigal son is, is exactly how we're going to see the real world application of this choice of love. Use his words to teach and counsel each other. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with a thankful heart. And Steve and I swore to each other we wouldn't do it, and we've done it. Um, he's reminded us several times to be thankful. And uh, that, that's so easy to miss, and I'm missing it here again. Um, that they live in a time in which the gospel was being spread. It was growing. I think any of us uh, would probably about a couple hours living in the Roman world would say, Yep, I'm done. Take me back. I like running water and sanitation and um, <laughs> basic civil rights, <laughs> things like that. But uh, Paul says, no, this is, this is the world that we live in. Uh, this is the time in which God is really acting. And so let us be thankful. So certainly mentioning the Psalms, he's harkening us back to the Old Testament. 
which begins, begins that process that I think has worked. Uh, the Psalms are certainly uh, hymns, uh, religious literature uh, written for the Jews. And uh, we have been included in that. It's been expanded. But sometimes I think we forget uh, the house that we live in was not first built for us, right? Uh, we need to appreciate uh, that it, it went to another that's now been shared with us. But Christians are also uh, writing their own uh, hymns and songs. Uh, there's something beautiful about the creative process that God loves that we can, through the arts and various means, um, begin to share the truth. So um, from, from the early church, we have some, some little examples of some of these hymns. You know, just the statement uh, that Christ is Lord uh, was, was a huge uh, proclamation for them. It seems to come out early. And then 17, and whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Christ. All the while giving thanks. So again, he's repeating this. Be thankful. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. So nice delineation of two parts of the Trinity there. Um, but this representative, this priestly role, putting on the robe. Um, God's plan is for us to connect with him and then connect to the people next to us. We literally take on this role of being a priest to help another person gain forgiveness, gain direction, gain the mercy of God, uh, come into the presence of God. Yeah. yeah. I want you to ponder something. So there from verse 15 to verse 17, this reference to giving thanks or gratitude is mentioned three times. Oh. I'll be honest, man, when you're in the nitty-gritty of uh, being in ministry, dealing with things that we've been dealing with uh, as of late, uh, raising six kids and all that stuff, it's just like, man, you just want to get to the end of the day, right? And sometimes it's very hard to like revel in all that we're thankful for. So the twins uh, turned six today. And uh, so we had a, and, and y'all probably heard some stories of the ups and downs. You know, we've adopt, we adopted uh, the twins and uh, from foster care and uh, they've been a part of our life. We brought them home from the hospital, but it has been a, 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 real, a real struggle these last six years. Um, but this morning is uh, we woke up and sang happy birthday to them and we... Uh, they opened their presents, and I got them in the car, um, got them to the donut shop, and I wouldn't, I told them they could go in, but then they had to go back in at the house to go use the bathroom already after they already got in the car, so that was another five or seven minutes that we were waiting, so we really didn't have time, and so I said, no, we can't go in, and Sadie, Sadie said, Dad, don't be rude on our birthday. <laughs> so... <laughs> We go in and get donuts, right? But as we were there eating the donuts, and it was, they're, they're, they, a donuts shop, if you don't know, is a very, is intended to be a very stimulating place, <laughs> right? All the donuts in the case that says, eat me all. And they, that's, that's some of their issues. They get overstimulated very quick. But they weren't like that this morning. And we just had a delightful time in my heart in that moment was filled with gratitude for these six years that we have had with these kids 
And even though it's been very hard and challenging, I cannot imagine them being with anybody else. And I'm very, very grateful. Because what God is doing, part of what God is doing in, in this whole process of us being their mom and dad, is he is changing us. And we are becoming more compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient because we get to be their parents. And, and so that's when I become at my best. It's when I'm able to revel in the thankfulness for what uh, we're able to be together uh, as a family. And then that goes back to then to verse 12. If you have a hard time being thankful... It could be directly related to you having a hard time of feeling chosen, holy, and dearly loved by God. And maybe that's the point where you need to work and do the work of trusting in that truth. And then the thankfulness will then follow, right? And then the compassion will grow. It's all intended to work together. So it's humbling to think that you go to seminary and you study and you read a lot of books and you read great authors and you think you know about grace and humility. And then you have kids, right? And then God... Be married first. Exactly. Be married and putting someone above you. And God has a way of just really just getting it in there, right? It's You you have this theoretical knowledge, but you're going to put it into practice. You're going to learn. So much of what we do is actually... With our bodies, you know, when we choose to be at the donut store, when we choose to spend yeah. time with our wife, it's it's that choice that I think for God ultimately matters. Um, one issue that we need to raise with you all um, to covet your prayers and your wisdom, we are reaching a, a precipice, an un, uh, unplanned but unprecedented event in the life of our church uh, for really all our adult life, um, certainly our years in ministry, our denomination of United Methodism has struggled uh, over the issue of, of marriage and what defines marriage. Is marriage between a man and a woman, or can marriage be between two men and two women? I believe the scripture is very clear uh, that it is between a man and a woman. But what has also become clear is that is not the direction in which United Methodism is going. And so there is some decisions that we're having to make as a church. You'll hear more about this on Sunday as we begin the process. Um, well, check your email tomorrow. There's going to be a, we're going to send out a letter tomorrow, kind of get you ready. And then uh, Sunday we'll make a, a brief announcement relative to this. Uh, but the main thing we want you to do is to put a date down on your calendar. That if this, is, if, if this is something that you've been following for literally, like Kurt says, for decades, um, and you're interested in knowing more, there's going to be a meeting at St. Luke's. Uh, United Methodist Church on May the 19th. That's a Thursday. May the 19th at 6.30 over at St. Luke's. That's 3011 West Kansas Street. And um, conference officials are going to come. And one of the reasons why this matters to us is because 
you know, we are, we, we have our church and then we are a part of a district and we are part of an annual conference. And really the annual conference has a lot of say over our church, say over pastor Kurt and pastor and myself and pastor Melissa's ministry here. Um, there are going to be things that are going to be voted on in at annual conference in, uh, in June. <coughs> That will then lead us as a congregation to need to make some choices. And so there's going to be some things that we're going to be having to, uh, to work on together this summer and into the fall um, because of these votes that are going to happen at annual conference. So we just wanted to make you all aware that that's starting to uh, come to rear its ugly head, you might say. Uh, but I believe that we have the leadership in place. Uh, Pastors, our leadership, our church council, our delegates to annual conference that will lead us in a place where we'll all feel good. And it is our hope that if you have questions or concerns about any of this, that you'll just come and talk to us. Um, that is our hope that we can figure out how to navigate this together. We want you to hear clearly as well, this is not going to become our one topic Oh, um, we're not going to be talking about this all the time. It's not going to be what we deal with from the pulpit. Um, it's our intent that what you see us doing from Sunday to Sunday, the way that we operate, the way that we welcome everybody. I mean, there are all sorts of folks that come through our doors, and we're excited about that. That's never going to change. Never. Um, but it, it, as much as we're going through the process, you need to hear, kids, we're probably getting a divorce. Okay, you know it's it's that kind of conversation. Um, there was an attempt uh, for our whole conference to leave, uh, and that's been put on the back burner by a recent uh, judicial council ruling. So we're going to have to do it as individual churches, which would be a little more complicated. Um, but uh, we're we're trying to do our best to keep to what Scripture teaches the honest contextual definition of what God said about a man and a woman being in marriage, but also living in our real world and being able to share love uh, to all sorts of people. It's, it's a tough issue, and two people can disagree, uh, but at the end of the day, I think we have to agape. We have to make our choice, and that choice should always be informed by, I think, Scripture. And the tradition uh, that began in Paul's day, uh, the issue of homosexuality was hugely prevalent in Paul's day. Are you kidding? The Greeks virtually invented it. And it was commonly practiced. And Paul has very strong things to say that it's not compatible uh, with uh, a growing Christian life. So um, it's a sticky situation. As Steve said, uh, we're, we're here to talk. We're here to listen. We're here to do whatever we can um, to try to keep our our family healthy and safe. We got one question here at the front. Last last session, we're going to finish Colossians next week. Yes, and, and then, then that we, following night, we go to St. Luke's to talk to the conference officials. So yeah, we'd love you to join us. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and then next, and we will we will resume. Uh, our Wednesday night Bible studies. Oh, I'll give you the date so y'all can put it in your calendar. August the 10th. School starts August 8th. And uh, we will start 
uh, our Wednesday night Bible study on August. We'll start whatever whatever is next on for Wednesday nights. We'll start that back on August the tenth. Okay. We're not sure. We're not sure. What do you want to study? Ezekiel. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? Yes. Well, considering what you've been through recently here, Pastor Kirk, I want to provide hopefully a few words of encouragement. Thank you. My wife Cecilia, not too often long ago, had surgery, if not identical, very similar. Tonight, with other family members, Cecilia is in California touring Yosemite National Park. And uh, so she's doing quite well. And uh, your recovery looks like it's progressing so favorably to me. I suspect that you'll be able to run the Boston Marathon in the years to come. Well, I don't know about the Boston Marathon, but the Yosemite thing sounds quite good, Steve. Maybe yeah. next week I'll, uh, yeah, right. I'll go into her. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, it's so much easier to read history as opposed to live history. But we know each day, each second, each flowing of the water is precious. Too often, Lord, we don't notice it until it's, it's over, or the fear of it wakes us up. Help us today to know that the days that we rush through, and these years that we want to forget about, are the times that you work within us, that the gospel becomes something real for us, and the times that we choose whose children we really are, who we will follow. So, Lord God, we do humbly pray that you will direct us. If we are pig-headed and wrong, correct us. If we are fearful and timid, give us strength that we might proclaim boldly a truth that has made our world a better place. We know your heart does turn towards your chosen people, both the Jews and those of us in this room, that we have labored long to do your will to bring your word forth and make it live today in people's lives. Help us, O Lord, as we face the next series of challenges. We continue to pray for the people of Ukraine, that they might be delivered from oppression, that the women and children in particular would be kept safe and be allowed to return to a home that is shalom, is complete with your presence, safety, and a hope for future. In all things, Lord, this world is a hot mess, mainly so because of what we've done in it. Help us, O oh Lord, to dig deeper into the priestly robes that you would put on us. This world needs God, and you have said it's our job to be the agent of that. So help us get to work, O oh Lord, to not get lost in fights or disappointments, but to be people that, with each step, grow in excitement because each breath leads us closer to your kingdom the world where it'll actually be shalom peace eternal help us as we strive this day in your son's name we pray amen love you guys good night